the, the biggest example I can think of where we actually did it well was uh, database upgrades. A lot of times you're hitting constraints, you have queries failing, and the easiest thing you can do, even though on Heroku, their Postgres plans are freaking expensive. Sometimes you just throw money at it. That extra RAM gives you enough breathing room so you can keep working on features and not worry about that, that problem that you know is building and looming. What's up, y'all? Welcome to episode 10 of Bootstrapping SaaS to Millions. I'm Mike Wagstaff, and we share stories and lessons learned on bootstrapping our company from zero to an eight-figure business. So today I am flying solo, Kevin's out, so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to dive into maybe some of the more um, technical and engineering-based aspects and phases of growing a SaaS business. So if you're not technical, maybe send this to your technical co-founder or your CTO. Um, but if you are technical, we can get a little bit more into the weeds in this episode. Um, I'm gonna talk about the five mistakes that I think people make when building a SaaS, when bootstrapping a SaaS. And um, some of these come from our own experience, some of the mistakes we've made, some of them come from talking to other SaaS founders that we've met along the way and some of the mistakes we've seen them do. Um, and also before starting Spectora, I used to run an agency where I would build um, SaaS prototypes and help people to um, get their SaaS off the ground. And so I got to see a lot of things people were consistently doing wrong. Um, and a lot of them are not at all technical, but, but business related as it applies to how they choose to spend their money early on. So we'll dive into the five mistakes. Um, if as you're listening, you have any questions or want me to go into the weeds a little bit more on future episodes, definitely hit me up. All right. So mistake number one, uh, building with the latest and sexiest tech. To me, this is um, really hard to do when you're coming from the world of engineers. You talk to other engineers, everybody's trying to say they use the coolest, newest thing. Um, there's always that um, reputation associated with using the sexiest, latest tech. And gosh, when you're building your own SaaS, I think this is the biggest mistake you can make. You have to think like a business person. You are not building, uh, you're, this isn't a hobby. You're not doing something just to learn. You should be viewing this as a business investment where you're gonna be putting in a lot of time, a lot, lot, lot of time into this thing that you hope will make money. And if you're using something that's on the bleeding edge, it's an alpha, it's in beta, they're gonna change up APIs. You're gonna have to maybe you know, maybe they'll be breaking APIs and you have this deadline to rewrite a bunch of code while your early customers are depending on it to be stable. That's not a position you want to be in. And I think the best thing to do here, build with what you know, build with what you can move fastest in. And usually that is the thing that you got proficient at that might not be the latest and greatest. But if you're building what you know and also building in something that's stable, it has a mature ecosystem, there's most of the problems that are out there have been solved for it. There's um, a lot of libraries, plugins, whatever it is. Then you know that you're not going to have to be inventing the wheel for some new sexy thing. And so for me, when I was starting, I knew two languages. One was PHP. That's a thing that I think most engineers, it's super easy to learn. So most engineers um, from a certain era, for me, that was like 2005 to 2015 were PHP engineers. 
Um, super easy to learn. Obviously, um, it's gotten better, has some drawbacks. I also had built several apps in Ruby on Rails. So not, not enough that I'd consider myself an expert, but maybe four or five um, kind of in the um, agency world where I built from the ground up a Ruby on Rails app. And so for me, I knew, hey, I can move really fast. The framework solves a lot of the problems so that there's less boilerplate. And so for me, this was what I can move fastest with. Also, this is, you know, so if we're talking 2015 is when we started building, there were, I think Backbone JS was like kind of just past its peak of popularity when it came to the front end. Um, you were starting to see React. I don't think Vue was quite gaining popularity yet. There was a number of other front ends, um, JavaScript frameworks. For me, plain old JavaScript and jQuery were the ways to move fastest. People hear jQuery and they're like, wow, what is this, the 90s? To me, this was the way to move fastest. Uh, with Ruby on Rails and jQuery, I could build out entire modules in a couple days. Um, the model view controller architecture combined with uh, just simple JavaScript files allowed me to move really quickly. Obviously, tech debt is something that um, we are now paying off. We would eventually start to rebuild a lot of our main pages in Vue.js, uh, but that's, that's later on. When you're at that early phase where you just need to get something off the ground, I think the, the best thing you can do is just get almost proof of concept out there. Get the basic, basic interface out there, get the basic functionality behind it. And so when you're picking your language, what can you do that fastest with is the only question you should ask because you can be rapidly iterating. You're gonna be needing to change things and you don't want external demands like massive breaking updates, new versions, um, breaking everything that you've already built. So, so that's mistake number one, trying to build with the latest and greatest instead of what's stable with what you know, with what you can move fastest in. All right, mistake number two, over-optimizing your architecture. If you're an engineer, you probably have really great knowledge on how to scale things. If you've been working at a company of any significant size, You've probably seen scaling issues. You know what it's like. You know the things that you can do early on to solve them. Often these are, these are mistakes early on. Consider that the odds of your startup going out of business are probably 90 plus percent. Don't throw too much time at something until you know that you have liftoff. And so when it comes to your architecture, um, kind of in line with what I was saying earlier with Rails and jQuery, go with what you can um, get buy with. And this might be different depending on your different markets, but investing too much early on is time that could have been maybe spent talking to customers, building the features that they're asking for, maybe tweaking the, the overall flow and user interface in a way that is going to make them happier. And so don't think too much about all of this. Um, a few examples from what we did. We started on Heroku free dinos. The, the free ones go to sleep for like four hours a day, like whenever people aren't using them. And then when somebody first hits it, when it's asleep, it takes like a solid minute for it to warm up. Not the greatest user experience, but when you only have a couple people beta testing it, probably not a big deal. You just give them the heads up and say, hey, if you hit this, like you're the first guy to hit it in the morning, it'll take 30, 60 seconds until that first page loads. After that, it'll be all good for the rest of the day. Um, 
that's something super simple. It's easy to get started with Heroku. You don't need to worry about creating, you know, worrying about server configs. And we're actually still hosted on Heroku. We've moved up to Heroku Enterprise, but that was a really easy way to get started. Um, database structure. We just went with the uh, kind of tried and true Postgres um, relational database. I know um, for a while, the NoSQL databases were gaining a ton of steam. I think there's a lot of good uses for them. Currently, we're in the process of tearing apart our monolith, which we've been for at least the, since we started, so five years, um, into microservices, finally. And like I said, we're, you know, we're at like six, seven million dollars in revenue a year. Now's the time where it makes sense, where it costs us more to not do it. So now's the time where we're re-evaluating a lot of our architecture. We're starting to pick apart the places where it's inefficient, move certain data that's more efficient in an in a unstructured format into, um, say, Firebase is currently a transition we're making. Um, and so just really think about what you need just to have liftoff. In the beginning, I don't think we had any background tasks. Everything ran synchronously because our database was tiny, so we didn't have these long queries. That would bite us in the ass really quickly, and pretty soon we had to roll out some method of having background jobs. But in the early days, quicker that we can move, the better, and that meant less architectural complexity. So everything was your um, very vanilla Rails server-side rendered pages. Um, I don't think I was the best engineer in that. I just I crammed a lot of logic into the model or even worse, the controllers. And eventually we would come to refactor those into service objects. But that would be years later when it became a problem because we had a growing engineering team. When it's just me, it was just really easier, is easier to do it that way, to move quickly and not over-optimize. Um, I didn't write any tests ever, which I know is like contrary to most modern day development um, methodologies. Test-driven development is huge. I think it has a ton of value, especially when you have a production app that's scaling, when you have a team where new engineers are coming in, they're learning the system. Early on, I just kind of knew all the connections in my head. I knew that if I changed something here, it might impact something over here. And that was easy enough for me to keep track of on my own. And writing tests was something that I knew would take away time from building more features, from optimizing the interface to getting the users to, to sign up better. Uh, in the past, I talked about revenue-driven development as like this little term I made up of just like, that's what governed every hour, every minute that I spent was how does this get us a little bit more um, revenue so that we can survive to the point where all the other stuff like scaling become a real problem. So again, if you're an engineer, if you're coming from a, a strictly engineering background, this is so hard to do. You almost have to forget certain best practices, ignore all the future problems that if things go great, you know you're gonna face. But trust me, don't cross that bridge until you come to it. That's mistake number two, over-optimizing your architecture. Mistake number three, over-engineering your UI and UX. I think it's easy to perceive um, users as being super fickle if they have one bad experience, one loading spinner, it takes a little too long, they're just gonna leave and go to the next step. That's probably true in saturated markets. If you're trying to build the next great CRM, and uh, one of our engineers joked yesterday that by the time you load up a CRM's homepage, they have another competitor just popped up. Okay, 
that's going to be very different. I think you have different thing cut out for you, but in that kind of market, you're probably not bootstrapping because you can't um, have the delays that bootstrapping brings. But if you're approaching a niche market, your UI and UX doesn't have to be super polished. You're trying to win customers' hearts and minds with something hopefully uniquely different. And that could be your design, that could be the way you approach the problem, that could be better ways to optimize their business flow. When we launched, there, the loading times on certain pages were atrocious. Sometimes 10, 10 seconds on a piece that they're frequently using and kind of popping back and forth. But it was enough to show them what it would become. The guys that are your early adopters, those users are very much a different mindset. They're more forgiving. They're more willing to look past some of the blemishes and see the potential in a way that that next wave of customers will not be. And so spending too much time just to save a few seconds on loading, page refreshes, um, that, that could be a rabbit hole that ends up eating hours of time that could be spent delivering things of true value, which might be, again, stuff that optimize, makes their business more efficient. And I say business because again, most niche SaaS will be B2B. If you're trying to build a B2C app, again, way more fickle of an audience. I think that's another beast entirely. You can listen to some of our early episodes on choosing a space, episode number five, if you wanna um, hear more about B2B versus B2C. And again, with UI and UX, God, there were some pretty shitty designs that I threw out there that I would come to refine over time. But hey, in the beginning, I have a cohesive color scheme. I'm using a CSS framework that makes a lot of the design look and feel the same across all the different pages. And then from there, a lot of it is just making sure that the functions that you want the users to do are obvious and not worrying too much over few pixels here, a few pixels there, margins here, padding there. I, I think a lot of that, if you come from a more design-oriented background, is where you can spend a lot of time. You want it to look perfectly polished. You want it to look like the sexiest app out there. And I think design is super important. I think I put more effort into design than I did engineering. And, and that's because my background is a little bit unique in that not only did I spend some time as just an engineer, I also spent some time as just a designer. And I also spent time in the world of psychology as a counselor and getting that human kind of psychology element. But if I had to spend a lot of time somewhere, I think looking at UI and UX is where I would spend that time over engineering. But again, how can you not get lost in that? How can you continue to view it as a business and you're investing time and every hour you put into something? Is that the best thing you could have done? So yes, make it look good to an extent, but don't get too lost in UI and UX. That is mistake number three, over-engineering your user interface and user experience. All right, mistake number four. And I saw this so much in the agency world. Uh, we saw it a lot with a lot of um, friends that were running their SaaS businesses. It's the engineering mentality. Thinking too much about the what ifs. Your imagination can run wild and you'll have no end to the list of well, what if the user does this? What if they want an option for this? What if most people prefer this over that? Guaranteed any, any amount of time spent on this and you'll, you'll overwhelm yourself quickly. A lot of times people think this way before they even have customers, before they've even talked to more than a couple people that might be their eventual customers. It's really hard to base your decisions on if you've just talked to a few people, then usually that's just what you got to go with. 
if you talk to one person and they say, oh, I would prefer option A, you talk to a second person, they say, I prefer option B. Okay, now you're kind of stuck and maybe a lot of it comes down to your gut intuition. Like what makes sense? Let me build it this way. And then wait and see when you get more customers, if you're going to have people saying, eh, you really should have gone with B. Cool. Pivot then. But I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, they're going to, if we have this, they're going to want this. If we're presenting ourselves as a competitor to them, we're going to need this entire feature set. When we launched, a lot of it was very bare bones. We picked one key problem. And for us in the home inspection world, that was report writing and delivering the report to the homeowner. We picked that problem and we came about with a little bit smoother way to do it. Then we launched with that. Of course, yeah, we had all the thoughts of, well, what if they want to integrate payment? What if they want to integrate their contracts into our platform? What if they want automatic text message reminders and follow-ups? We eventually did all of those things, but we didn't wait to have those to launch, to start showing customers, hey, this is what we're thinking. This is how we think we can make a massive improvement in your business process of writing reports day to day. And so by doing that, we were able to get feedback, validation, and then the more potential customers we were talking to, the easier it was to get like that significant number of people that can tell you, should I go with this route or that route? And so I wanna caveat that too, if you're also gonna make wrong decisions that you're just gonna live with, there's definitely features that we built in a way that was not ideal because we had limited information. And if you remember from some previous episode, I said like a lot of being a startup founder is just being decisive when you have very little information. Sometimes it feels insufficient, but that bias towards action, constantly moving forward is really what gets you off the ground. Not waiting, gathering way too much information until you make a decision. That's that game of analysis paralysis that, that will leave you stuck and not moving forward. Sometimes it's better to pick a path. Who, who are the customers that you most connect with that you feel like really get it? What are they saying? Cool, do that. There's going to be people that say, oh, you did it wrong. Cannot worry about that. Keep moving forward. As long as you're satisfying some niche, some piece of that pie of your customer base, that's where you start. You can always build more options. You can always build feature sets later on. You can always rebuild things and have migration paths from the old way to the new way. We've done that a number of times and those are all possible. And they're just way easier when you have revenue, when you have a dev team, when you're not a solo founder or a small team trying to do it all. Cause it's hard, it's overwhelming. And keep coming back to it. The time that you spend is the most valuable thing that you have. All right, so that is mistake number four, thinking about too many what ifs. All right, final mistake. Throwing time at problems when a little money will do. I was guilty of this a lot. Um, the, the biggest example I can think of where we actually did it well was uh, database upgrades. A lot of times you're hitting constraints, you have queries failing, and the easiest thing you can do, even though on Heroku, their Postgres plans are freaking expensive. Sometimes you just throw money at it, that extra RAM, gives you enough breathing room so you can keep working on features and not worry about that, that problem that you know is building and looming. We were able to postpone some kind of bad architectural, some bad database architectural choices that I made early on. We are able to avert all the problems with those by just continuing to upgrade the database, by having some um, kind of additional systems that we did to archive old data. 
we threw um, a number of easy fixes at it for five years. Right now, we are actually rebuilding some of the core data structures in Firebase in a, in a better format so that um, it, it's going to be better for the future. But we spent five years kind of kicking that can down the road. Always knew it was a problem. Always saw these, these queries that had to go through a three-level deep, four-level deep hierarchy of, um, of database tables, like massive join queries that, that were having a really hard time as our database got into the terabyte range, as we had uh, hundreds of millions of records on some of these tables. It, it got to the point where, yeah, we would go down because these databases were, or these queries were just overwhelming the database. And usually, as soon as we did an upgrade, things got better for a while. And um, when it comes to dollars, gosh, dev time is expensive, especially if you're a founder, your dev time is valuable because it is even more valuable because you have a number of other things on your plate. You're probably trying to manage a lot of the aspects of this growing business. And so you're thinking about a lot more than engineering. And so how can you minimize time spent on problems that you can kick, kick down the road? Throw money at it. Compare what that would cost to re-architecture all of your database versus let's just get, give double the RAM to our Postgres server. Maybe that's all it takes. Um, again, yeah, there's definitely some things that could be done early on, like making sure you have more efficient structures. I think if I was a better engineer, those things would have been a little bit more intuitive to me. But because my time was a, a smattering of different, uh, or my experience was a smattering of different um, career paths, uh, I didn't know necessarily what I didn't know. Good news is you can also you can still make an eight-figure business without being a great engineer, great designer, um, a great product person. What matters most is just moving forward, not spending time where it doesn't matter, and really focusing on how you can just keep growing the business, which is growing your revenue. So. That was mistake number five, throwing time at problems when a little bit of money will do. Um, you know, just to talk a little bit more about the phases. Because early on, like I said, a lot of it was how can we do everything free, make the most of our resources. There's a lot of programs out there that you can sign up for that give you free AWS credits, for example. Azure, I know for a while, was giving out a lot of um, free credits for their cloud infrastructure. There's a lot of ways where you don't have to spend a lot early on. Um, I know Intercom gives out uh, very low cost options for when you have very little customers. And trust me, all these companies, they'll get you when you grow. Once you're in their ecosystem and then you start growing, you get pretty shocked at the price tags. But whatever it takes to get you off the ground early is probably where you should be focusing on. Um, to get in a little bit more into the weeds, this is where really you might not be able to follow along unless you're, you're an engineer. Uh, some of the things I want to just highlight um, of what we did, like so background jobs. We, like I said, did not have backgrounding initially. And we eventually added um, like synchronous, from synchronous operations to like a lightweight, I think it was called Sucker Punch, a Rails gem where you can run background jobs that are still running on the web server. Then eventually we moved to delay job. And then we started breaking out multiple queues for our background jobs. This is when we had probably a few thousand customers and then the background jobs were becoming a very big thing where we had some that were very high, um, high resource and then others that were short 
quick, they need to run fast. That's when it became time to split up into multiple different queues um, consumed by different dyno formations or servers. And um, then eventually we moved to Sidekick, implemented Redis. A lot of that came once we had thousands of customers, a few million in revenue, we had a dev team, um, like I said, archiving data. We got to the point where we have, like our data is very kind of um, prioritizes recency in the world of home inspection, there's not a lot of people going back to old reports. So at some point to battle some of the uh, problems with our database and its growth, we started archiving old data. If it's older than 60 days, we would zip it up into a JSON file, throw it on uh, S3. And then if somebody tried to hit it, we would just say, hey, give us a minute while we retrieve this data from S3, turn that JSON back into um, database rows, and then it was back. And so, some of those strategies were, again, just ways to kick the can down the road until we can afford like massive re-architecture. When my brother worked at Home Advisor, at the time, they were, they were just about to merge with Angie's List, billion dollar company. He said they were just then tearing apart their massive monolith and breaking it up into microservices. And so, again, I think that just highlights, do not over-engineer, do not over-optimize. Um, do things only when it, they're so painful and so costly that um, you can't do anything else. And instead, just keep focusing on what do the customers need? What are the features they need? Um, those are always the best places you can spend your time when you're a bootstrap SaaS. Oh, let's see. What else can we talk about here that, that makes sense? Um, mistakes that I know I made. Um, I, I violated our first... Uh, our first tenant here of building with the latest, latest and sexiest tech. When we started, I built our mobile app in Ionic. Ionic, I think, was like V2 beta. It was um, the future of it was kind of unknown. We we thought it just seemed like the best option at the time. Over the course of the last few years, we know that the dev community around it's been um, less enthusiastic. There's some better options like Flutter that have come out, and so that was something where. Should we have chosen something that had a little bit more traction, seemed to be um, backed a little better by big names, maybe like a React Native? Um, would we have been better off? I think so. We spent a lot of time and money on Ionic and the, um, gosh, just the deployment process, the build process, so shitty. It was so hard to work with. And we always thought it would get better because we were first on the alpha, then the beta. and. Um, the places that they're devoting their time just weren't what we were um, needing. So we're rebuilding our app in Flutter. We hope that, you know, that's a new thing. And we hope that we haven't made the same mistake again, but their backing by Google seems to be a, uh, a point in their column for, uh, for sticking around and continuing to grow as an ecosystem. But um, just be mindful of like, what, who are backing the horse that you're gonna choose to, to ride into battle with? Cause that's, um, that's huge. All right, I think that's all the thoughts I have on this. Um, let me know if there's any questions, anything that you want us to dive deeper into. Um, like I said, once we started getting more engineers and we opened up a lot of options, and I think at some point I'll have some of my senior engineers come on the podcast and we can talk about lots of these specifics because over the last couple of years, I've been gradually removing myself from any um, kind of direct engineering responsibilities to focus more on overall business growth. 
And, um, and so I'm less into the details on all of that lately, but we'd love to deliver that if that's a value to y'all. I'm not sure how many of you are engineers or if you're more on the business side, sales side, marketing side. So let us know what's helpful to you. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.